control. So Genesis chapter 3, we'll stand together to read the word, starting at verse 1. It says, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, has God said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, You shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said unto the woman, You shall not surely die. For the Lord does know that in the day you eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. Father, we thank you for your wonderful presence that's here in this house. This morning, we just pray that as we open your word together, that you would speak to us, Lord, that you would have your way. You know every heart and every situation. And we know, Lord, that you want to minister to your people. And so, Lord, we ask you, trusting you in Jesus' name. Amen, amen. You may be seated. Genesis chapter 3 records the account of the first disobedience to God by mankind and begins the long story that flows throughout the scripture of our need for a savior or our need for a redeemer. Now, if you grew up in a church environment or you've been in church for a while, the fact that a snake speaks in this passage is not new to you. But if the scriptures are only a recent addition to your life, then can seem a bit unusual. Uh, exactly what the relationship or interaction with animals was before man fell is unclear. It does seem, however, that Adam and Eve were not particularly shocked by the fact that the serpent spoke to Eve. You don't see words recorded of Eve saying, hey, check that out, a talking snake. But it just, it happened, and there was no particular surprise by that fact. And there's been a lot of discussions held, a lot of sermons have been preached, about the balance of responsibility or who was to blame here was it adam was it eve was it the woman's fault after all she ate the fruit first but then was it the man's fault because it seems that he was present and didn't do much about it was it 50 50 was it 60 40 was it 70 30 who knows and uh you know, I'm not particularly interested in being politically correct because that's not often biblically correct. But I'm happy to basically say Adam and Eve were both responsible. At the end of the day, the principle of the scripture is when we do wrong, we have to own our own actions. And so either of you husbands or wives that are trying to blame Adam or Eve, we both have to take responsibility for our forebears. But having said that, don't stone me just yet, ladies. Having said that, Paul wrote to Timothy and he said, Adam was first formed and then Eve. And he said, and Adam was not deceived. But the woman being deceived was in the transgression. I got to thinking about that. So if Adam was not deceived, what made him willing to take the fruit and eat it? They both knew. Adam and Eve both knew. Eve actually misquoted it in her conversation with the talking snake that God had said if they ate of that tree 
they would surely die. Both Adam and Eve knew that. And so if I can speculate for a moment, when Eve took a bite and Adam saw that she didn't drop dead, he perceived that it was okay and that perhaps the situation wasn't quite as serious as God had said. After all, here's his wife chomping away on this piece of forbidden fruit and nothing seems to be wrong. She hasn't dropped dead. She hasn't turned into a pillar of salt. God hasn't reached down and squashed her like a bug. So maybe it wasn't as serious as they thought. There were some things that changed. They realized they were naked. They tried to do something about it, but nobody died. Nobody died. But then God came walking in the garden. And instead of enjoying the beautiful communion with God that they were used to, they hid themselves. And when it was all said and done, they were banished from the garden, they received consequences for their actions, and their relationship with God was never the same again. And just as God had said, they began to die. Amen. I want to preach or teach a little bit of both this morning about deception, perception, and reality. Deception, perception, and reality. To deceive is to deliberately cause someone to believe something that is not true, especially for personal gain. To deceive oneself is to fail to admit to yourself that something is true. To perceive, and I promise you I'll probably get these words mixed up at least once this morning, so just bear with me. But to perceive, to perceive is to become aware or conscious of something or to come to realize or understand especially through our senses or to interpret or regard something in a particular way and reality i think we all understand what reality means but so it doesn't get left out reality is the state of things as they actually exist not as they might be by an idealistic or notional idea and so eve suffered as a result of a deception adam made a false perception but god is always the reality and that's why the word of god is so important today because the scripture says that it is forever settled in heaven that it is one of the very few things in this world that simply does not change it is god's word it's not dictated to by economy by fashion, by popularity, by trends in society, or what the government of the day thinks. It is settled. And so it is so important to us because it is the filter through which everything must pass. Our actions, our thoughts, our lifestyle, our cultures, our attitudes, our decisions, all have to pass through the Word of God to be examined, to see if they are deception, perception, or in fact reality. Amen. When we gather together and we worship the Lord together as we have this morning, the Word of God is preached. I have a question. What do you do with the Word of God once you've heard it preached? What do you do with the preaching of God's Word? I love how the preaching of the Word is able to impact us in a service. When we gather together, God's Word is able to impact us. We, are, we respond sometimes by coming to pray at the end of a service if we feel that way inclined and often it seems like we use the expression that God is reading our mail that he seems to know exactly where we're at 
In fact, I've heard of many experiences where somebody who was visiting a church has angrily approached the preacher afterwards and said, who told you about me? How did you know my business? When the preacher standing there gobsmacked realizes that whatever the Lord had given them to preach was exactly for that person. And God knows what we need. Amen. I'm glad the Apostle Paul said that it's by the foolishness of preaching that God saves those that believe. The same apostle said in the next chapter of Corinthians, he said, my speech and my preaching is not with the enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. That's why when the word is preached, it can seem like it's a surgeon operating on our hearts. We're not here to hear a lecture from human reasoning, but God's word is quick and powerful and if we can use the spiritual parallel, it's like bread fresh baked from the oven for that day, for our situation and for our needs. Amen. There are times that the preaching of God's word lifts us up and encourages us greatly, and I thank God for that. But there are other times it seems to tear open our souls and expose what doesn't please God. Sometimes it's like a balm or an ointment and we're able to be soothed and to keep going in our walk with God and we love that. I love those kind of services. I like it when God makes me feel better. I'm happy to confess that. But there are other times we don't like the preaching so much because it pierces and it shines a light into dark corners. But you see, it's the Word of God. And because it does not change, what it is trying to do is it's trying to protect you from deception. It's trying to adjust your perception because it alone is reality. Amen. Amen. So it is the demonstration of the spirit and of power. You know, sometimes we think that only talks about the miraculous where people are healed or miracles take place and those things take place. But when God's word reaches into your heart, and reads your mail and knows exactly where you're at, that's the demonstration of the power and the Spirit of God. It is only the preaching of God's Word that can be spoken in a place and one message can minister to different people in different ways. That's because it's not man's idea, but it's God's idea. Amen. And so if our interaction with the preached Word from this pulpit finishes when we close in prayer you're not getting all the value that God intended. We should be reading our Bibles at home. Yes, we should. We should be studying our Bibles at home. But when we hear the preached Word of God, we need to take it into our hearts, into our minds, and allow it to change us. We need to think about it during the week. We need to talk about it. We need to squeeze everything out of it that we can. Sometimes the preaching of the Word of God is reactive. In other words, it deals with a situation you've been dealing with. What's going on in your week or in your month or in what's happening in the situations you're facing, and it deals with it. Other times it gives us things we need that are yet to come. That's how powerful the Word of God is. And so we have to be careful what we do with the preaching of the Word of God. As we read in Genesis, deception is the devil's business. That's what he loves to do. And uh, there are warnings throughout the Scripture in both Testaments about not being deceived. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, it lets us know very clearly that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. 
And it says, be not deceived. Don't be deceived. Don't be tricked into believing something is true when it is not. And then Paul goes on to write a list of things that are works of the flesh or sinful things like fornicating and adultery and all those kind of things, drunkenness and stealing and all those things. He said, These, he said don't be deceived. People that do those things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But we find ourselves in a society where there is no right or wrong anymore. And it's like it was in the book of Judges where every man does that which is right in his own eyes. And you're not allowed to say anything because that's judging somebody. You know, the misunderstanding of, of, of judgment in the scripture is, is quite bad in a lot of places today. I heard a man say once, you know, somebody said to him, judge not that you be not judged. And he said, twist not scripture lest you be the devil. And I, th I thought that was a fairly appropriate response. There are things the scripture instructs us to judge. No, we're not each other's judge. It's not our job to run around judging people. But there's nothing wrong with saying, hey, that's sinful. There's nothing wrong with saying that doesn't please God. It's not somebody, it's something. There are things that we are expected to draw a line in the sand about. Amen. In 1 Corinthians 15 and 33, the apostle wrote, Be not deceived. Evil communication corrupts good manners. Or a modern translation of that says bad company corrupts good character. He said, don't be deceived. Who you hang out with makes a difference. Makes a difference. Then in Galatians chapter 6, the apostle said, be not deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that shall he reap. He that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he that soweth to the spirit shall of the spirit reap life everlasting and let us not be weary in well-doing for in due season we shall reap if we faint not this is a powerful principle that is throughout the scripture that you will reap what you sow and it says the apostle said don't be weary keep sowing the right seed and it will give you the right harvest sometimes we interpret that passage of scripture to mean that what we sow to others they will give back to us that's sort of a little bit more in the area of karma, which we don't really believe in. But there is some truth to that. There is a certain amount of what you sow, you reap in your relationships. But the reality is, who's the first person to eat of the harvest? The farmer. The farmer is the first one to eat of his own harvest. And so what we sow into our own lives, we reap back to ourselves. And so if I sow bitterness or carnality or hurt, or criticism or unforgiveness into my field, I'm going to eat my own harvest. I'm producing a diet that's going to feed those same things. So yes, what we sow in our relationships with others has consequences. But you eat first of your own harvest. And so that's why we need, that's why he said, don't be deceived. Don't be tricked. Take it seriously. In Psalm 126, the psalmist said, he that goes forth and weeps, bearing precious seed shall doubtless come again with rejoicing bringing his sheaves with him what that principle means that even when it's tough it says with weeping you sow the right thing even when it's tough you'll harvest the goodness of god when it's difficult and times are tough and we all have those times if you'll still bear the precious seed the harvest will come God will show up and you will reap what God has promised. Go with me to Isaiah chapter 44, please. 
this chapter of prophet Isaiah is it speaks about a man as an individual but it's really a reference to the spiritual state of Israel and their relationship with God and I want to start to read at verse 19 of Isaiah 44 it says and none considereth in his heart neither is there knowledge nor understanding to say I have burned part of it in the fire also I have baked bread upon the coals thereof I have roasted flesh and eaten it and shall I make the residue thereof an abomination? Shall I fall down to the stock of a tree? The, the, the person is saying that this, this, the writer is telling us this, this sinful person who's been deceived doesn't really grasp the fact that the same tree that they've used to light a fire and make bread and cook meat and do all the rest of it on, that same tree they've made an idol out of and burned down to it, bowed down to it. They don't realize they're deceived because in verse 20 it says he feeds on ashes and a deceived heart has turned him aside that he cannot deliver his soul nor say is there not a lie in my right hand and so a deceived heart that turned him aside has made it almost impossible to comprehend the deception that they're in in fact he cannot recognize that in his right hand where there should be strength there is a lie. There is deception. Amen. Now, that's deception. Perception is not exactly the same as deception, but they're definitely first cousins. They're definitely related. And one can certainly lead to the other. Our perception of things has a massive impact on our lives. How we perceive ourselves, how we perceive each other, how we perceive God. When you read in, there are multiple places in the scripture and we won't read them all for the sake of time, but many of us know the story of when the spies were sent into the promised land and they came back and when all the discussion took place, the overwhelming consensus of the people because of the negative report was that we were in their sight as grasshoppers and we were in our own sight as grasshoppers. And so their perception of themselves was that in the face of the enemy, regardless of the promises of God, they saw themselves as little bitty insects, inferior, incapable, and easily destroyed. God had said, I will give you the land. I will clear out those before you. Everywhere you put your feet, I will give you. But their perception changed the history of their nation. And instead of going into the promised land and inheriting the promises of God, they began a 40-year death march in the wilderness. In 1 Samuel 17, many of us since we were children have heard the story of David and Goliath. And we read in 1 Samuel 17, 11, that when Goliath came out and threatened and challenged and bluffed and boasted, it says, when Saul and Israel heard the words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. In the exact same environment, a young shepherd boy named David comes in. Nothing's changed. Same armies, same battlefield, same giant, same challenged. That young man comes in and he says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? identical situation very different perception very different perception and we also know the story 
in the Old Testament in 2 Kings where Israel's enemies surround the city of Dothan because Elisha is in there and Elisha, by the power of God, is giving their king the enemy's plans. And so they figure we wipe out the prophet, we'll win the war. They surround the city. The prophet's servant gets up in the morning to, I don't know, make coffee. Probably wasn't cooking bacon and eggs, being Old Testament Jews. But he got up to make coffee and he looked out over the wall and he saw the host. He saw the army. He saw the enemy. And he said to his master, we're history. We're done. We're going to be slaughtered. But the prophet asked the Lord to open the servant's eyes that he could see that they which are with us are more than they which are against us. It wasn't a change of situation. It was a change of perception. Amen. More than once in the Old Testament, God caused confusion or a false perception to come into the enemy's camp when Israel was in battle so that they began to attack and kill each other. God just wreaked havoc in the enemy's camp and instead of fighting against Israel they began to kill each other and basically deliver themselves into Israel's hands it's the power of God in demonstration but here's the sobering question do you not think the devil would use the same weapon against the church to confuse our perception cause us to start hacking into one another perception is very very important you see the thing about perception the thing about perception is there's an expression that says that your perception is your reality. And what you perceive, it doesn't matter what anybody else says, your perception is what you believe. Now, I've just recently completed doing a, a counseling course, which some of you are aware, and actually got one of my classmates visiting with us this morning, so better be careful. But one of the common threads that runs through the idea of counseling is that we have to take or try to help somebody go from how they think about something to thinking about something more factually. In other words, you're trying to, to slowly help them to challenge their perception and measure it against what is true. And that's not a new concept. The scripture is full of that idea. The scripture is full of the idea of God saying, I want you to think the way that I would have you to think. Not the way that you think, but the way that I... That's why you'll hear me reference it often in Ephesians 4 where it talks about there is a putting off of an old life there is a being renewed in the spirit of our mind and a putting on of a new life. God is saying, your thinking was twisted because of sin. That's not how I think about you. That's not how I think about how you should think about me. That's not how I think how you should think about others. And so we need to change that. And so in a sense, God's been involved in counseling since the beginning of humanity. And he's a whole lot better at it than I am or that anybody is really. Amen. In Isaiah... Let's turn there. We're not taking too long. Isaiah chapter 54. It's a well-known verse of Scripture. It's even been put to song more than once. Those of you that are old enough to have listened to a bit of Fred Hammond might recognize this Scripture. Those that are young enough, well, you missed it. Isaiah 54 and 17 says, No weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper. And every tongue that shall rise against thee in judgment thou shalt condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is of me, saith the Lord. Notice the verse does not say, 
No weapon shall be formed against you. That doesn't, that's not what it says, but sometimes that's how we perceive it. What it actually says is that when a weapon is formed against you, that it shall not prosper. What does that mean? That means that that weapon's original intent, the thing that it was fashioned for, that will not be achieved. It does not say there won't be weapons formed against you. It does not say that there won't be a battle. But it does say that the purpose that it was formed for will not be successful. What is the devil's purpose? The Lord said in John 10, the thief comes not for what? But to steal, to kill, and to destroy. That's the devil's purpose. But then there's a little word in there that says, but I have come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. That same comparison exists in John 16 and 33 where the Lord said, these things I've spoken unto you that in me you might have peace. He said, in the world you shall have tribulation. He said, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. You see, there is no guarantee in Scripture that there will not be a battle, that there will not be a tribulation that there will not be things that come against us. The guarantee is that if we trust Him, that weapon that is formed against us shall not prosper. Amen. You see, there is a comparison here between what the devil desires to achieve and what God can actually do in the exact same situation. And when we get our perception adjusted and recognize that what we think is only a battle or only an obstruction, God sees as an opportunity and we trust Him, it will change the way that we think. Nobody likes the battle. Everybody wants the blessing. Nobody likes the battle. But perception in the face of opposition is crucial. Having the right viewpoint, knowing who our enemy really is, knowing who our God really is, and knowing who we really are. If we have the right perception, we'll still have the battle, but the weapon will not achieve that which it was fashioned to achieve. You see, God is able... This, this, this must really mess with the devil's head because God is able to take his best efforts and turn them and produce something that actually benefits us and glorifies him. If I was the devil, that would drive me insane. You're trying to destroy, and God is able to take it and convert it somehow and turn it into a victory and glorify himself. A classic example of this is the story of Joseph. Joseph said to his brothers, you thought evil against me. He said, what you did, that wasn't a real godly thing. It was wicked. It wasn't of God. He said, but God meant it unto good to bring it to pass, as it is to this day, to save much people alive. In fact, a few chapters earlier, Joseph said, God sent me before you to preserve you. Now, that's a bit twisted as to what actually happened. His brothers sold him into slavery. They betrayed him. They, they sold him like a piece of merchandise. It was a horrible, wicked thing that 
was not blessed of God, that God did not tell them to do. But along the way, because Joseph kept his head straight, he kept his perception right, God took that and he twisted it and turned it into a situation that would preserve his family, that would become the nation of Israel, that would bring us the Messiah. That's what God is able to do. Another verse that underlines that principle is in the Psalms when the psalmist said, you have turned my mourning into dancing. He didn't say you've replaced it. He said you've turned it. You've taken that which was bringing me grief and somehow as only God can, you've turned that into dancing. You've put off my sackcloth or the garments of mourning and you've girded me or clothed me with gladness. Nobody is pretending that things don't get hard. Anybody that tells you that is not reading the same Bible that I'm reading. But we have to be careful not to let our hearts deceive us. Because the scripture says the heart is deceitful. It's desperately wicked. And who can know it? And so if our perception is dictated by our emotions, when we're going through something, if we allow our perception to be governed by how we feel, our view will be wrong. And we'll start swinging our sword at the wrong person and get it all messed up. So we've got to be careful our heart doesn't deceive us. And we've got to be careful that what we perceive doesn't drag us down. In the book of Daniel, chapter 3, you don't need to turn there. It's a well-known story. It talks about three young Hebrew boys that were thrown into a fiery furnace. God didn't stop them from going into the furnace. Could have. He could have just breathed and snuffed out the fire. Could have done what every wanted to do. But he allowed the three Hebrew children to go into the fiery furnace. But when they went into the furnace, he was in the furnace with them. And not only did he cause their, their bonds, the ropes to be consumed, he changed the whole perception of himself in the eyes of the king of the known world. That's how God is able to take that which seems, fiery furnace seems pretty grim. Not a high rate of survival. But just as God was in the furnace, he's still in the ship with the storm. That's the reality. That's the reality. The devil wants to deceive us. He wants to give us a false perception. But the reality is that God is still in the ship. And that if you will trust him, it does not matter how bad that weapon looks, it shall not prosper. Let's stand together this morning. Let's lift our hands and just worship the Lord for a moment. Amen. I wonder if across this place we can ask God to change our perception, to open our understanding, to recognize who really is our enemy, to recognize who really is our God. I'm not going to be deceived. I'm going to look to Him for my reality. Hallelujah, Jesus.